0: Good morning, church. I wanted to start off, uh, before we jump into the text, by thanking you. Um, It has been a year. Uh, A year of service here, September 2nd, or last, last Sunday would have been one year anniversary. And I would have mentioned it the week before, but I was going to, me and my wife and my daughter flew on a plane last Saturday and surprised my mom for her 60th birthday, and so I didn't want to spoil the surprise in case she watched that sermon or something, and so I'm thanking you now. Uh, It's such a blessing to be a pastor here. Thank you for how you've loved my family, cared for me and my wife and my daughter. I'd like to say we feel like we belong here, like a family And I want you to know, I want you to know that I praise the Lord for you. You're heavy on my heart all the time. And I'm deeply encouraged by your love for the word and by your love for the Lord. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the Lord will do here and is doing. I'm excited by the many ways the Lord is moving in our congregation and in in your hearts individually. And I'm, I'm so grateful grateful to the Lord for bringing us here and for for you. So thank you and thank you for your faithfulness. Now let's finish blubbering and jump into the text. (laughs) This week we wrap up the book of Micah, as we've mentioned. So let's open up to Micah chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 11 through 20. Let's stand together and read that. Micah chapter 7 verses 11 through through 20. This is the word of the Lord. A day for the building of your walls. On that day, the boundary shall be far extended. and In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Please be seated. And let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the book of Micah and how your spirit has spoken to us in it. We pray now that that would happen again, that you'd help us to understand what we read, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Mold our lives to your word now. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Micah ends on a high note. Praise the Lord. Micah places a great emphasis throughout the book on the character of God. Have you noticed that? We've seen throughout the book a God who is great in his justice and in his mercy. And that's the case here in the finale. Micah, throughout the whole book, doesn't pull any punches either. That's been a major, major emotional theme. He is the faithful voice of the Lord to a sinful people, the southern kingdom of Judah. And remember, Micah foretold at the very beginning of the book the invasion of the northern kingdom of Assyria. That kingdom would fall And the people would be sent into exile. But the rest of the book was a warning to the southern kingdom, to his home kingdom, Judah, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. And that kingdom was full of injustice. The poor were oppressed by the greedy. The leaders of Israel took advantage of their people like cannibals, he says. The priests and the prophets only sought to make money from their offices. Things needed to be made right. And God promised it would be. In fact, He promised He would be the one to bring justice. He would set things right. So, chapter six was a lawsuit from God against His covenant breaking people. Remember, they broke the covenant they made with God by treating each other horribly. God said, Can I forget any longer? The answer was no. So he would strike them with a grievous blow, his judgment. Because God is a God of justice. He puts things right. He does not acquit the wicked man or close his eyes to the sin of the oppressor. Praise the Lord. God is a God of justice. But throughout the book, we've also seen that God is a God of great mercy. In chapter 2, right after the denunciation of the oppressive leaders in Judah, a promise of judgment, we read in verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. In chapter 4, verse 7, again, after a long denunciation in chapter 3, we hear, and the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. God is not an angry God who delights in punishing his people, even though he is a God of justice. He's a merciful God. And this week, in verse 18, we find out exactly what he delights in. He delights in steadfast love. God is a merciful God, and that is how the book of Micah ends. In our text today, God shows his steadfast love and faithfulness in four ways. First, he shows it by assembling his people. Verses 11 through 13 are a promise. Micah takes us into the future with the repeated phrase, in that day. A day for the building of walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you. You'll remember that phrase from chapter 4, when God makes promises about the future. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. This verse here, these verses 11 and 12, are echoes of that verse. A day for the building of walls. That's a triumphant start to a message. And no doubt Micah is looking forward to the time of Nehemiah, the great leader of Israel who was sent back to the promised land, to Jerusalem from Persia to oversee the reconstruction of Jerusalem's walls. Hidden within this exclamation, this victorious exclamation, is a reminder that the walls will be torn down. Jerusalem would indeed fall and the people of Judah would be exiled. But that's not the end for the people of God. God always keeps his side of the covenant and he will restore his people. The walls will be rebuilt again. But it's even greater than that. That's not the only promise. The boundaries will be extended. There is restoration for the people of God and there is greater blessing. Things will be better than they were. It's unclear in verse 12 who exactly is coming from Assyria and Egypt and from rivers and from mountains. But if we see this verse as an echo of verse 4, chapter 4, verse 6, rather, then it's most likely the people of Israel returning from exile. They're coming from their scattered places back to the promised land. They're returning home, experiencing God's blessing. But it could also be people from other nations like Egypt and Assyria turning to the Lord and coming to worship Him. We also saw that in chapter 4. You remember? The nations turning to God and telling each other, let's go up to His house. It could also be a description of the extension of the borders of Israel stretching from north to south and east and west, boundless. But no matter the original intent of verse 12, These are all blessings that are certainly true. Frankly, I think that all three of those interpretations are in reference to different parts of the future. For when Micah is writing, the people of Israel would return home from exile. God would bring them back. And people from great giant empires would turn to Christ in the future from all over the world, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. They would come to worship in the house of the Lord at the feet of Christ. And we see that today, here, in the church. But there will also come a time when the boundaries of the kingdom of God on earth are endless. When they stretch from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And we look forward to this. Amen. This passage is a great example of partial fulfillment in the Old Testament, greater fulfillment in the New Testament, and greatest fulfillment at the coming of Christ. But verse 13 sits as a reminder for each fulfillment. Judgment will come upon those who do not cling to the mercy of God. In chapter 6, we read that God would make his people a desolation. And here that word is Repeated, The earth will be desolate. That's the case with all of the nations who reject him. Apart from the, the kingdom of God, the earth is a desolation, a wasteland, a useless place. Only in the kingdom of God is there life and prosperity. So verse 12 is a great reminder. In that day, they will come to you. God is going to reveal his steadfast love by assembling his people. He's going to bring all those who are members of the covenant to himself. And this reminds me of one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, John 6, 37, which says, Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's a statement of assurance. Those who belong to Christ will never be cast out. Praise the Lord. I think that's a great way to summarize the book of Micah. Although God chastises his people, he does not reject them. Although God purifies and sanctifies his people, he does not cast them out. And so even though God disciplines you... Because of your sins, he does not reject you. Whoever comes to Christ will never be cast out. Isn't that good news today? Praise the Lord. God shows his steadfast love by assembling his people to himself. Second, he shows it by shepherding his people. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, verse 14, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Verse 14 starts a prayer, Micah's prayer, that lasts from here to the end of the book. So Micah, representing all of God's people, pleads for God's faithfulness in full assurance that he will see God's faithfulness. Micah desires to see God shepherd his people. He calls the people of Israel the flock, the flock of God's inheritance. Shepherding means a lot to Micah, and it means a lot to his hearers. Shepherding imagery is used in every hope section of the book. You'll recall it it keeps coming up, especially when good things are happening. So the first hope section was all the way back in chapter 2. In verse 12, God gathers his people. And then the next one was in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6, God assembles the lame. And of course, in chapter 5, verse 4, we learn that the Messiah... Would shepherd his people. God is pictured as the divine shepherd who gathers his people and keeps them safe. And here in verse 14, Micah asks the Lord to bring his people to good pastures. At the time of Micah's prayer, the people truly were in desolate places. The ESV, I don't think, does a perfect job here with, with verse 14 it says they dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land the new living translation i think is actually a little bit closer to micah's meaning when it says though they live alone in a thicket on the mount on the heights of mount carmel now i'm no shepherd all right but i know that a thicket is not the best place for a flock of sheep neither is the top of a mountain Micah sees the current situation of the people of God like a flock of sheep lost in a thicket on the top of a mountain. That's a good way to describe the nation of Judah right now. Lost sheep far from where they should be, far from where is good for them, far from where God intended them to be. And so Micah asks the Lord to let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Gilead and Bashan were both places on the other side of the Jordan River, the the east side of the Jordan River. When the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan, when they received their inheritance, the the promised land led by Joshua, you remember that Reuben and the half -tribe, tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay on that side, the east side of the river. They went and they fought with the people of Israel to conquer the land. And then their inheritance was on the east side of the river. So they went and lived there. They wanted the land of Bashan and the city of Gilead. So Micah is asking the Lord to return the people to a time when they settled those parts of the promised land, which has been a long time. It's been taken away from them. So his prayer can be summed up like this. Take us away from these horrible places where we've brought ourselves and bring us to the places you promised us long ago. And so God responds to his prayer in verse 15. This is God speaking. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. In his response, God goes even further back, further back than the crossing of the Jordan. He will shepherd them. He will bring them out again, just like he did in the Exodus. And he will show them great things and marvelous things like he did at that time. Remember the exodus that Micah has brought up in the book before is the great salvation event of the Old Testament. It was the cornerstone of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And he promises them here a second exodus, a new salvation then, and a new basis of covenant. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd that Micah foretold of in chapter 5. Micah here in his prayer provides for us a great example. God is our shepherd. And we call upon him to bring us to safety, to feed us, and to take care of us. And when you find yourself in a place far from God, in a thicket on a mountain, what should you do? call out to him. A sheep trying to get home by themselves won't be very successful. They need their shepherd, and so it is with us. No matter the shame you feel or the reasons you're in that dark place, crying out to the shepherd is always the right response. And he is faithful. As our shepherd, he wants to bring us to himself. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10:11. The sheep know the shepherd, and the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The first promise of verses 11 through 13 is similar to this second promise, but with a different emphasis. The first promise had to do with assembling and blessing, gathering from all over and bringing them back. This promise in 14 and 15 has to do with God's tender care and affection for his people. God brings us to himself in Christ because of his great love. He shepherds us to himself, to good places, to blessings that we didn't even ask for. And his response to Micah is helpful for us. Micah asked for God to bring his people back to where they were God promised to do even more. Do we shrink God sometimes in our expectations of what he'll do? Once again, God goes above and beyond. Third, God shows his steadfast love by subduing the nations. God speaks in verse 15, but verses 16 and 17 are Micah's response to God's blessing. He understands that if Israel is to be brought back to the land, then God would have to take care of their enemies. So verses 16 and 17 say, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Israel had been constantly attacked by the nations that surrounded it. Ever since they received the promised land, they were in constant battle against nations that wanted to take it away from them. You recall, though, the book of Judges, tells of this cycle, right? The people do what's right in their own eyes. And so God gives them over to, to nations around them constantly, time and time again, until they repent and he sends a judge and frees them from those invading peoples. Until this cycle keeps happening, until King David, who finally brought peace to the land and his son Solomon was the first king to reign in complete peace. But that was the only time in Israel's history, because after Solomon, the kingdom was always under threat, either from each other—north and southern kingdoms—or from outside. And that culminated in the northern kingdom of Israel falling to the invading Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah falling to the invading Babylonians a hundred years after. The land was not full of peace. It was not a peaceful place. It could not be said that nations recognized God's lordship over the earth. But this promise here in verses 16 through 17 tell us that's exactly what they're going to do in the end. The nations, not just Assyria and Israel's other immediate enemies, but all nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. It's an interesting detail in the glory of God revealed to them, they'll look at themselves and be ashamed. The nations are a reference to all peoples outside of Israel and Judah. It's everyone not in the covenant. The nations have come up a few times in this book. In chapter 4, verse 2, we read that the nations will be eager to approach the mountain of the Lord. That was an end times picture of glory, something to look forward to when people come to the throne of Christ. But a little later in chapter four, just a little bit later, we read that the nations were assembled against Jerusalem, eager to defile her. That was the here and now. The nations are decidedly against the people of God. And that's the sense we should understand here. The nations immediately represent those actual nations who were trying to destroy the people of God, like Assyria and Babylon. Micah tells us that they would be made deaf and mute, that they would lick the dust like a snake and crawl before God in fear. Micah prays that the nations would be made speechless, that they'd be dumbfounded at Israel's newfound blessing. That they would be in a state of shock and utter humiliation brought before the king of the universe to kick, kiss his shoe. It's a dramatic picture of utter defeat of the enemies of Israel. But notice they're not brought before Israel's king. They're brought before God. We're told that they will be in the fear of the Lord. And rightly so. As we've learned from the book of Micah, God is a God of justice. And he will not let the oppression and injustice of the wicked slide. This is the case for all people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nations represent all people outside of the covenant community. And so Paul says something really similar. In the book of Philippians, he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Micah doesn't paint a pretty picture for those who reject Jesus before the judgment. They're like snakes who cower before God, made to recognize his lordship, they slither out of their strongholds and tremble before him. They're ashamed. They're humiliated. That's not what you want to be. That's not the group you want to belong to. Would you rather, wouldn't would you rather belong to the group that God showed mercy to, that God gave his blessing to? Either way... All people from all times and all places will bow before Jesus the King. God's steadfast love is shown to his people, his covenant people, as he brings justice to the world and subdues the nations under his lordship and ends suffering and oppression and wrong. He squashes the unrighteous rebellion of a wicked people. Sin is dealt with in those who reject him, in his judgment. But fourth, God will show his steadfast love by forgiving sin. The good news of the gospel is that there is a way to be forgiven for sin. You don't have to be counted among the nations. So we can praise God as Micah does here in verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like you? I love this form of praise, the rhetorical no. There are so many things that we make to be gods in our hearts that oftentimes we need to be reminded that there really isn't any God like God. There is no God like him. And Micah is really clever with this question. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. He uses his own name to wrap up his book and to frame his praise for the Lord. He lists several things that God does that makes him stand out. He pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. This is forgiveness. If there's something that we've picked up, From the book of Micah. It's that we don't really deserve to have our sins forgiven, our sins passed over. We don't deserve to have our sins pardoned. Actually, we might find these words here in verse 18 a bit strange, especially in light of chapter 6. Remember God said, shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? The answer was no. And do you remember all the way back to chapter 2, verse 7, when the false prophets are speaking false hope to the people? They, something, they say something really similar to what Micah says here. They say, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But remember that the people weren't walking uprightly. They were oppressing each other, dead in their sin. They weren't following the Lord. They weren't listening to his law. They were excusing themselves of their sins. They gave into the dangerous temptation that God's job is to forgive sins. Throughout the book, we've been presented with a people who are unrepentant and who expect God to forgive them. Because that's what he does. They didn't want to live in covenant with God and worship him with all of their lives. They just wanted the blessings that came along with the covenant. They expected God to forgive them no matter their attitudes or their hearts. But that's not how this works. All of chapter 7 should be understood together. Pastor Andrew showed us last week that Micah is still lamenting. He's lamenting the judgment of God over the sin of Israel and Judah. And all forgiveness, all forgiveness starts with a lament over sin. Verse 18 comes after all of this lament and confession. And this forgiveness is for a specific people. Did you notice that? That? the remnant of his inheritance. It is for those who belong to him, who have come to him in faith and who worship him as their God. The remnant is the faithful people of God that he has maintained for himself from the beginning of time until now. There have always been those people who have worshiped God as he's revealed himself. In the the hope passages of Micah in chapter 2, Chapter 4, and here, all address the remnant. Hope only belongs to those who have faith in the Lord. The end of verse 18 reveals then the character of God. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. I've mentioned this steadfast love throughout the sermon. We find this same phrase back in Micah 6 8, the most famous passage of Micah, where God says he desires his people to love kindness. It's the same Hebrew word, which should give us some insight into that passage. It's God's character that we should look like. God delights in steadfast love. He delights in loyal, covenantal, long-suffering love that does not let go or ever waver in its confidence. He delights to keep his promises and he delights to remain faithful to his word and to his people. Did you know that God delights in loving you? He doesn't love you begrudgingly. He doesn't harbor anger or shame against you. He doesn't think that, man, I really wish they would have done this, that, and the other, but I guess I'll love them. He delights in love. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love and faithfully, constantly loving you. Praise the Lord. Verses 19 and 20 are statements of confidence. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God presents himself at the very end of Micah, this book filled with judgment, as ultimately reconcilable. Do we believe that about him? He is a compassionate God. He understands you. And he understands what you've done. But he sees you and he's compassionate toward you. And how is he compassionate? He treads our iniquities underfoot, he subjugates our sin, he defeats it and is victorious over it. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 6. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who are still today dealing with guilt and condemnation, hear this. Jesus Christ has stomped your sin under his foot. He has defeated the enemy and your sin has been cast into the abyss of the sea. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is faithful. He shows his steadfast love to us constantly, every day. And that's what Micah latches on to in verse 20. After all the judgment, after all the chastisement, Micah returns to the promises of God. God has made promises to Jacob and to Abraham, and Micah is confident that he will keep them. That he will restore his people. And in the same way, he has made promises to you in Christ. He has promised to deliver you from your sin. He has promised to call you son and daughter. He has promised to give you his Holy Spirit. He has promised to seal you for the day of redemption. And many, many more promises. And so as we ready our hearts to take communion, let's reflect on those promises and upon the mercy of God. Even though we don't deserve it, he delights in steadfast love. And if you desire to participate in these promises, You can't honestly say you do. And place your faith in Jesus Christ. Who paid the price for your sin. And through whom we experience the compassion of God. Who stomps our sin underfoot. John says that if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've not done that before. Take some time now to confess your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, as most of you are members of this church, take a moment to praise the Lord for his mercy, reflecting upon where you were and where you've come and how great God's mercy has been toward you, his grace in Jesus Christ. The fact that your sins indeed have been stomped underfoot. Amen? Amen. Let's joyously come before the table now with that in mind. Let's pray. Ushers, you can make your way forward. Lord, we thank you. We are overwhelmed by your grace and mercy that you show toward us. We do not deserve it. We do not deserve a relationship with you. Lord, if there's been one thing that's been made clear time and time again, it's that you are holy and that we are desperately wicked. But Lord, you you've stomped our sin underfoot on the cross. And we praise you. We praise you for your mercy and your compassion. And Lord, now as We approach your table. We ask that you would move in our hearts to reflect upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.